Well, it's great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, I got kind of a fun surprise this week. I love the Wall Street Journal. Like, I love reading it. I have for a really long time. I don't really have the margins in my life to get it as a daily paper. Like, we get the Seattle Times, and I love reading that too. But on my doorstep this week, there was the Seattle Times, like we normally get, and there was a Wall Street Journal. And I thought, Christmas came early. This is great. Like, I get to read another newspaper. And if you know me, you're like, yeah, that, mm-hmm, that's right. So on the cover of this week's Wall Street Journal was an article about a college in Los Angeles called Occidental College. Anybody ever heard of Occidental College? I maybe had heard of it somewhere. It's a small liberal arts college in uh, the area of Glendale. And its focus is on excellence in education for a very diverse student body. Back in 2012, a man named William Rick Singer, who may sound familiar to you guys, called one of the admissions officers at Occidental College and said, hey, uh, I represent this family. Let's call them John and Jane Smith. John and Jane wanted me to call you because their daughter, Judy, she was denied admission to your school. And I just want you to know that if you were to reconsider her application, her family would be willing to make a significant donation to your school. And I love this. The uh, admissions officer had a one-word answer for Mr. Singer, no. That's not how it works at Occidental. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, here's why. That man, William Rick Singer, is the same guy who counseled a whole bunch of wealthy parents and celebrities to try to get their children into some big-name schools, kind of through, as he called it, the side door. So if you let your child, if you will admit this child of this wealthy celebrity into USC, they will make a significant donation. Or if you uh, will let them onto your athletic team, you know, even though their academics aren't that good, we'll make this work, right? He's part of a multi-state federal investigation, possibly one of the largest scandals in college admissions, and he just happened to swing by on this phone call at Occidental College, and the guy said no. Now, think about the wider state of, like, higher education right now. College admission is extremely competitive. Colleges are competing each other left and right for the nicest facilities and the best recruiting tactics for students and athletes. Like, whatever size school you may have gone to, rest assured, it has been touched by this move to a highly competitive environment in uh, higher education. Like, that's just the deal. And it got me thinking as I read this article about this, this conversation, why in the world would Occidental say no? Like, what... What conviction would come up that would prevent them from saying yes to the offer of a whole bunch of money? Occidental's not a big money school. It's actually a school, as I learned about, that was founded on giving an educational opportunity to students who might not otherwise have that opportunity. They don't got money laying around everywhere. They've got a mission to a particular group of people. And I think that's the reason that Occidental, this representative, this admissions guy, was able to say no. It's a different set of allegiances. Most schools, even though they don't want to do it probably, they have this allegiance now to this highly competitive environment like I talked about. And so, of course, what's your fear if you're in a highly competitive environment? That you will lose. You will get left behind. You will not have the resources to reach the next generation of students. It's a fear-based mentality, but I think we all get that, not just colleges. Occidental is not, as from my reading of it, it's not focused on that same fear-based mentality. It's different. The Wall Street Journal explains it this way in terms of just how this culture came on into uh, Occidental. A turning point came in the 1980s. 
as Los Angeles transformed into one of the nation's most diverse cities. Occidental trustees, many of them local business owners, felt there weren't enough educated minorities, people of color, to fill jobs. And so Occidental reworked its curriculum and enrollment practices to draw more black and Latino students, said Eric Newhall, a retired Occidental English professor who served on the school's faculty council at the time. The college emerged as one of the nation's most racially and socially socioeconomically integrated private colleges, long before many other colleges prioritized diversity. This has been in their blood as a school for a long time. Their mission is not to keep up with the Joneses. It's not to have the nicest facilities. The Wall Street Journal article talks about how the campus is really nice and really pretty, but the sprinkler system is the same one that was there in the 1930s. So it's just kind of starting to get outdated and a little rusty, as you would imagine a sprinkler system from the 1930s would be. They've had to say no to things like this offer of lots and lots of money because of their mission. Their mission is not to be the fastest dog or the strongest one out there. Their mission is to serve a particular group of people. And the lesson I think we need to start with, and I think this is revealed in our scriptures today too, there's a big difference between aligning yourself with an ideal and aligning yourself with a person, or in this case, a group of people. If your mission is to serve a particular group of people, you are going to think about that group of people. You're going to pray for them. You're going to try to make sure that your business or your teaching or your nonprofit aligns with where they're at. If, as, and this is true, I know for so many of you that work in the for-profit sector, you got a bottom line, you got to hit your sales goals, you got to hit your targets, that then becomes a chief influencer like a person could. And the argument that I want to make, and I think this is really clear in our text today, is that faith in Jesus Christ is not a principle. It is not a series of ideas. It is the lifelong pursuit of a person. Faith in Jesus Christ is not a pursuit of ideas. It is a person, a lifelong pursuit of a person. And that changes us, just like Occidental College has been changed by their focus on a particular group of people. So let's talk about this through the outline. There's an outline in your bulletin. It's got four parts to it. Setting the stage, uh, anger and uh, accusation, the credibility gap, and next steps. We're going to go through all those different movements together. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 9, which is the passage that Josh read for us. There are Bibles on the back table. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. Let it be our gift to you. So I'm going to read uh, in John 9. We're going to spend most of our time here. So if you just want to open up to that, kind of keep the Bible open in front of you, we'll go back to that. Now, What's happening at this part of John's gospel? John's gospel starts out with this amazing introduction of Jesus. The word became flesh and lived among us. Jesus comes on the scene through his first public miracle, the wedding at Cana. And then in John 9, he's rolling, right? He's got a ministry. He's got people following him. And I'll just summarize for us verses 1 through 12. Jesus meets this man born blind. And for those of you all who have been around a long time, you know I like to name people from the Bible. I don't want to just keep calling him the man born blind. So one of my favorite musicians is Marvin Gaye. So we're going to call the man born blind Marvin. All right? Can we, can we do that? So Marvin has been blind from birth. That's what the text tells us. There was no accident that made Marvin blind. There was no injury that made him blind. This just happened. And in the Jewish framework, you hear this from the Pharisees, for their understanding of how people with different abilities, disabilities arrived on the scene, that means that somewhere along the chain there was sin in their family. 
That, that's wrong-headed. That's not the way we need to look at this, but that comes up in the text. That's part of how the Pharisees would have entered into this. So Jesus meets this man, Marvin, blind from birth. And can you imagine how hard it would be to be blind from birth in the ancient times? Like, it's hard enough now, right? Like, I, I was in a class with a friend who uh, was basically legally blind. And just to hear the different steps he had to take every day, the people that provided support to him, the whole community that had to come around him, who were honored by being able to be his friend and to help him, it's incredible now. Imagine then. Imagine just like all the things that so many in our community can have to help them achieve access. None of that's there at this time. This is a very desperate situation for Marvin. And he doesn't know anything else. He's been blind from birth. So he meets Jesus. Jesus, I love this, he's just walking down the road. The text tells us he's just on his way somewhere, right? This was not some you know, high moment on the mountain. He's just walking along the street. And in verse 5, Jesus says this amazing phrase to Marvin. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Will you say that last phrase with me? I am the light of the world. Say it with me. I am the light of the world. Who says that? Who says that? to someone who experiences blindness. Who says that? Who, who could claim that and back it up? A man who has only known darkness and confusion and pain in his life, Jesus says to him, I can help you. But here's the thing, and this is true throughout the scriptures. Jesus never makes some claim and doesn't back it up. One of the ways we talked about it in uh, children's ministry at a previous church I served was God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. So when Jesus says to him, I'm the light of the world, he doesn't just say that. It's like, isn't that a lovely phrase? Don't you like how I phrase that right now? He then in verse six and seven says to him, let me show you what I mean. Listen to verses six and seven with me. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes. All the germaphobes in the room just got really grossed out. And he says to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which would have been nearby, kind of a place of worship for the Jews. And then he went and washed and came back and he was able to see. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I'm not kidding. This is actually going to happen for you. If you will listen to me, if you will do what I ask you to do, you can experience this. God always keeps his promises. If you have read a scripture passage this week that touched your heart, if you have heard something in your life recently and you believe that God was speaking this to you, let me encourage you that God always keeps his promises. He will not let you down. It may not look like you think it should. It may not happen in the time that you think it should. By God's grace, Marvin experiences this promise being brought to fulfillment immediately. That's pretty great. But know that God will do what he said he came to do. Jesus has said what he's come to do in Luke chapter 4. He said in his mission statement, I came to bring freedom to the captives and I came to what? Bring sight to the blind. He's already said he's going to do it. He's doing it in this moment. So an amazing miracle happens. Marvin can see. He kind of rubs the dirt and the spit off. He's finally able to see things that we all would take for granted. The dirt on the road the leaves on the trees, the people standing around him. And so people start to ask Marvin about it. His neighbors, the people who grew up with him, who knew his whole life, oh, that's Marvin, that's the blind guy. Now they see him different. And here's what he says in verse 11. They ask you, how are your, they asked him, how are your eyes open? Verse 11 says this, the man called Jesus, made mud, I like how he leaves out the spit part, he made mud, And he spread it on my eyes, and he said to me, go in Siloam and wash. And then I washed and received my sight. The light of the world broke through. 
And all Marvin does, and I want, just, I want us to notice this because this is consistent to his character. All throughout this chapter, all he does is say, Jesus did this for me. Jesus did this for me. Jesus did this for me. He's remarkably consistent. And that's with all kinds of people coming at him with accusations and Jesus is this and Jesus is that. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jesus did this for me. And I'll encourage us about this later on, but I just want to plant the seed now. How would you fill in that blank? Jesus did this for me. Jesus did this for me this week. He did this for me when I was in despair. Jesus did this for me when I was going through illness, when I was fighting cancer. Jesus did this for me. The world needs to hear our Jesus did this for me stories, church. They're not just given to you for no reason. They are given to you for a purpose. So let's continue on. Now we're going to go to chapter two, anger and accusation. This is part two in your outline. So Marvin is now miracle Marvin. He can see. He has had his life completely changed. Jesus shows up. He says, I am the light of the world, and he proves it. It's all good, right? Everybody goes home happy. No, because there's people involved in this story. There's always got to be something that comes up when people are involved. And there are a group of people who are white hot with anger at Jesus. Listen now as I read verses 13 and 14 for us. They, that would be the neighbors, the people that kind of knew Marvin growing up, they brought to the Pharisees the man who'd formerly been blind, Marvin. Let me stop right there. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but under Roman law, the Pharisees would have actually had a responsibility to cover minor judicial things within their community. So think Judge Judy. The Pharisees are basically being Judge Judy here. They have permission to help mitigate kind of small claims against one another. The Romans are fine with this. That's why the, the uh, Jewish people in this story would have brought Marvin to them. Hey, help us figure this out. We can't make sense of this. But here's where John really gives us an important insight. Listen to this, verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened Marvin's eyes. Why are they so mad at Jesus? Verse 14. Because he broke the rules. He broke the rules. They are so mad at him because he did something you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath day. Jewish men in this day, according to their law, were supposed to rest and to worship, and they were definitely not supposed to go around doing miracles. That was against the rules. I've shared this with you guys before, but there were different schools of thought within the Jewish tradition. Some men on the Sabbath day would get a rope at a particular length, they would tie it around their ankle, and then they would tie the other end of the rope to a stake in their front yard, and that was as long as they were allowed to walk on the Sabbath day. They did not want to break that Sabbath law, so they tied themselves up with a rope. Anybody do that on their Sabbath this week? Like, I would not recommend that. Like, we don't recommend doing that to animals, much less to people, right? The original law is good. The original law of Sabbath and God's ordering of the world, everybody needs a day to rest. Seven, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh you shall rest. This is a creation mandate. This is part of how God has wired things. And if you've ever lived your life for a period of time without a Sabbath, you know how hard it is. There's no way, no way, that in the rhythm and the kind of the pace of pastoral ministry that I would ever be able to be effective for you guys if I didn't take a Sabbath day and rest. And in this case, Jesus, the, there's, there's a mixed message here. The goodness of the Sabbath has been lost because the Pharisees are saying, well, you've got to make sure you don't do this and you need the rope. Do you need a rope? Let me go get you a rope so you can tie yourself up over here. That's not the point. Those are things that have now become ceremonial law and obstructive to Jesus' mission, which is to be able to bring people into his kingdom. This is not helpful. 
The original law of the Sabbath, super important, very vital for life. What's happened since then? Not so much. So Jesus said in different times in his ministry, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And in this moment, Jesus isn't even talking, but you can hear him saying, no, the Sabbath, that's a good thing. Are you guys going to argue with me about the miracle? Like, really? You're going to tell me that I shouldn't have done that? I picked the wrong day of the week to do a miracle? It's a miracle. Anybody going to complain about a miracle? Well, yeah, the Pharisees will. Marvin is now standing in the crosshairs here. What's so fascinating about the text that Josh read for us, Jesus isn't actually in this text. He's talked about, but he speaks earlier in chapter 9 and later in chapter 9, but this middle part, we're just hearing him referred to kind of anecdotally. Listen to verse 15 with me. This is Marvin standing up in front of Judge Judy, and the Pharisees also began to ask him how he'd received his sight, and he said to them, he said this before, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. It's almost like his story is getting simpler. Like if you've ever had to kind of retell things to like your spouse or a roommate, you just, it gets simpler over time because you're like, I'm repeating myself again. If I tell the exact same story, I'm going to go crazy. Okay, here we go. I got to tell it again. Imagine the people around him hearing him say the exact same thing. They're almost disappointed, right? Because they're expecting him to kind of go, okay, yeah, there was this other thing that happened. It wasn't really the way that I told it, right? He just sticks to his story because it's true because he's being faithful, because there's really not much more to tell. This is what Jesus did for me. Jesus made this possible. This was not me coming up with some way to magically take away my blindness. So how did the Pharisees react to this very simple, consistent explanation? Some of the Pharisees said, this is verse 16, this man is not from God. They're talking about Jesus, because he does not observe the Sabbath. He breaks our rules. How could he be from God? But the others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. They attacked Jesus' character. And in so doing, they're trying to pull down Marvin's witness. You, you cannot possibly say this is true. Because the guy that you claim that has done this for you, well, he's, he's, so, he's such a crackpot. He's this. He's that. We can't possibly trust him. So how could we trust you? And they don't just do this to Marvin. They go on and they question his mom and his dad in verses 18 through 23. I won't read that for us, but as a parent, that just makes me chuckle because at the end they go, he's old enough, go ask him. Like, why are we talking? Like, go, 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 go figure this out, right? The Pharisees can't let it go. Why can they not let it go? Why can we not let it go when something like this happens? When, when someone calls our character into question. Have you ever had your faith called into question? I had that happen to me a couple times. It's not fun. It cuts pretty deep, right? Like, like Donkey and Shrek, you cut me deep, Shrek. Marvin and the miracle that happened to Marvin undercuts the authority of the Pharisees. They don't like having their authority stomped on. And their allegiance to a set of principles, this kind of ceremonial law concept, as good as important as the real law behind that, as important as the Sabbath is, what they've made up can't handle the crisis that they're now facing. This is where we go back to this idea of principles versus a person. When you bring your principles to bear, and we need principles, right? And some guy, like Rick Singer, comes along and offers your college a bunch of money, it is way harder to resist that temptation than if your principles, your convictions, who you base your life around is a person. A person is a much greater comfort and guide in a moment of crisis than a bunch of rules. And Christianity is not anti-rules. Christianity is not anti the Old Testament, none of that. 
But think about how much more powerful it is to know that you have a person with you on whatever journey it is that you're facing versus just some set of ideas, some sort of dry thing that you can go back to. The Pharisees say it is not possible for you to heal on the Sabbath. And in so doing, they miss the author of the Sabbath standing in their midst. So have you had this happen to you before, kind of like the Pharisees, where you had a set of beliefs, you had some things that you were really keen on, and then something happened, something real life happened to you, and it just got shattered? Maybe you've, you've gotten this new job, it's your first you know, kind of really big, important job, or it's the next really big, important job. They're all really big and important, right? Nobody ever says, like, I don't have that important of a job, like, whatever. But you're working hard, it's bonus time, somebody else is getting promoted, you're like, oh, maybe I'm next in line. So you work harder, you're there every night, and what lands on your desk at Christmas time? The jelly of the month club. You didn't get the promotion, you didn't get the bonus, you didn't get what you wanted. And it's heartbreaking. A sense of your confidence is shattered. What's happened there is that your belief in the meritocracy has gotten blown up. Your belief that you have earned something has gotten blown up by reality. And it's really hard when our beliefs get blown up. My own story in this, I arrived here at Bethany four years ago. I have been so grateful for my time here. I am not going anywhere for a long time because I love you guys. But when I first landed here, it was a very, very big learning curve. I came from a different tradition. I had never done mobile church before. I'd been a pastor before. I'd been in ministry for a number of years. But this was a completely different animal. And I learned very quickly that the things that I prided myself upon, my confidence, my ability to preach, professionalism, being organized, all these things, it kind of didn't amount to a hill of beans when it came down to it. And I know I'm not alone in having this experience where you get to the new thing and you're like, I thought I was prepared for this, I'm not. And I'm so thankful that what I didn't go to in that moment of crisis was a bunch of my seminary textbooks. I didn't go read a bunch of books on leadership, even though I like to read. What I did is I turned to the Savior. And I'm not saying I did this perfectly. I did this painfully. I did this over time. And it was hard. But I found such greater comfort in saying, Jesus, I do not know what to do right now. I am so lost. Will you help me? And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you know you can do that with him and he will meet with you. And he may not have you know, a straight up word to say to you, although he will sometimes, but just being able to say that to a person, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then he is a person. He is not dead. He is alive. Amen. And we can talk to him and we can have a dialogue with him. And when crisis comes, we can say, I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Will you give me some clarity here? I'll take that any day of the week over some dusty book sitting on my shelf or some set of principles or axioms that I've told myself throughout my life. This self-talk, self-help, that won't get me anywhere, but a person will. A person will. As painful and disorienting as it must be for the Pharisees in this moment, as painful and disorienting as it is for us when we face our crises, a person is better in crisis than a bunch of ideas. We still need ideals. We still need principles and values. But I want to encourage you, in the week ahead, will you reflect on a time when your ideals were blown up? When you had something disappointing happen to you? When you you got passed over and you got the Jelly of the Month Club? Is anyone getting the Christmas vacation reference there? Okay, good. Man, about to blow up my pop culture lexicon with all that. Reflect on the time when your ideals were blown up and what was really challenged? 
Was it your confidence in the meritocracy? Was it your confidence in your own abilities? Was it your education and your esteem and your prowess? What got blown up? And then did you ask Jesus to enter into that with you? What can I learn from this? This was really hard. What, did you, what, what were you doing here, Jesus? Jesus can handle you asking him, like, what, did you, what, what was going on? What did you want me to learn here? I would encourage you in the week ahead, go back and reflect on that. Go to coffee with a Christian friend and talk to them about how who Jesus is met with you, a person met with you during that time. Or if not, where might he have been trying to meet with you and you weren't listening? Because that happens to me too. So, chapter three, the credibility gap. Let's keep going. Our ideals will come crashing down. We need to reflect on it. We need to take time to recognize that a person is enough. And the person at the center of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees, they're right in his face. They're right around him. They're going to confront him again. This is not the end of the battle with them. And they've torn up Marvin's credibility. They've tried to tear up his parents. They've come back to Marvin. They're still angry. And so they give one more kind of passing shot at Jesus' credibility. They say this in verses 28 and 29. Then they reviled him. They reviled Jesus, saying, you are his disciple. They reviled, uh, excuse me, they reviled Marvin. You are his disciple. You are a disciple of Jesus. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this, this man, we do not know where he comes from. We know the Bible. We know what we're talking about. Your guy, not so much. We don't know where he went to seminary. We don't know what kind of Bible translation he uses. We don't know if he's pre-trib or post-trib. We do not know any of this stuff. This is a big problem in religious circles, is it not? Whenever we hear somebody say, man, our way is the way. And Jesus said this, but when a particular church says, our brand is the particular way, you need to experience this. You need to make sure this is happening in your life or else you're not really on the team. Or our guy or our gal, our great communicator, they're, they're the person you really need to listen to. And maybe most dangerously of all, we've heard this before, our church is the one true church. Everybody else is getting it wrong, but we're getting it right. Wherever you go from here, friends, I hope we are all part of this church family together for a long time, and I've been in the game long enough to know that y'all are going to move and things are going to change, and I get it. Whenever you move, whenever you go somewhere and you're looking for a new church, whenever they drop that line, our church is the one true church, you run. You get away real quick. Because that's not a place of humility. It's probably not a place of grace. It's probably not a place that can say we might be wrong. You don't need to be a part of that. For 103 years, Bethany Community Church has taught Christ, taught the resurrection of Jesus. We've tried to focus as best we can on this person that we believe everybody needs to have a chance to meet. And people will visit our church from time to time and they'll go, oh, you're non-denominational. Okay, well, what do you guys believe about this, that, or the other? And I love the theological queries because they always reveal something about that person's experience. Like, they probably got burned really bad by a church that said, no, we don't do that, or that's not welcome here, or this, that, or the other. And we have our distinctives at Bethany, and I would love to have a conversation with you about that. But what I hope we never become, and what I believe we have not been by God's grace for 103 years, is a church that beats people up when when they bring something in that we're not super clear about. I don't want us to be that way. I want our greatest resource to continue to be the light of the world who has set us free. 
And we can't do that if we say to people, like, yeah, that, you're going to want to go play in another sandbox. Again, we have our distinctives, we have things that we're clear about, but we always want to point people toward a person. And when you hear things like what the Pharisees are saying, well, we know Moses, and this guy ain't Moses, that's a different conversation. Then it's time to try to find another place to grow. What is undeniable, the point I'm trying to make in all of this, is that no matter who you claim is your primary teacher, no matter what scripture or what your favorite theologian is, and I wish the Pharisees knew this and they don't seem to know it, no matter what attacks Jesus' credibility, you cannot deny the credibility of someone's life being transformed. And that's what Marvin comes back to. Look at verse 33 with me. They're beating him up. They're beating up his mom and dad. It's amazing he stays in this conversation. Like, right? He should have just jumped and drove off. Marvin says this. This is kind of the summary of his argument. If this man, if Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. If he were not from God, he could do nothing. You know what he's saying to them? He's saying, I can see now. I couldn't, and now I can. If he's not from God, that's impossible. J.R.R. Tolkien picked up on this in his Lord of the Rings trilogy. He would talk about how Sauron, the evil villain, the the guy that's out to destroy Middle-earth, Sauron cannot create new things. He can only corrupt things. That's what they're saying here. That's what he's saying. This man has created something new. I couldn't see. He brought vision into my life. Evil people don't do that. The enemy doesn't do that. The enemy can only steal and kill and corrupt and destroy. He can't do something new. Marvin's telling the Pharisees, this guy's doing something new. You better pay attention. And it doesn't seem like they listen. And he tells them over and over again, this is how Jesus has changed my life. And so to come back to this theme, church, how would you fill in that blank? How has he changed your life? What was a moment where the person of Jesus was real to you? How is the light of the world brought light into your darkness. Ephesians 5 has this incredible promise where it says, whatever is brought into the light becomes light. Is there a part of your life that you thought, there is no, no, there is no way. If that comes out into the light, I'm just going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be destroyed. My reputation will be tarnished. And Jesus put his light on it and it went, oh, that is light. God can do something good through that. The people around us, the people that we work beside, the people who are our neighbors, our classmates, they need to know about this light, the light of the world. And all we got to be able to do is do what Marvin did. That's one of my next steps, one of the encouragements I want to leave you with. Do what Marvin did. Do what Marvin did. He just kept saying, yeah, but Jesus did this. Jesus did this. Can I tell you again? Jesus did this. Did I tell you about the mud thing? Jesus did that. He did it. He gives credit where credit is due. He's consistent in his story. And the Pharisees keep trying to trip him up, but they can't because the story is that good. And his life is that different. And if you've ever struggled like I have, with like, how do I share my faith? How do I you know, tell people about Jesus? Start with what he has done for you and how he's transformed you. And I would say too, start with how the person of Jesus has actually made a difference in your life. Uh, I got to go to the dentist this week. Anybody else, after you turned 30, the dentist just became awful? Like, before 30, I was like, oh, this is fine. Once I turned 30, it was like, this is terrible. Like, I, man, I hurt for days and blah, 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 blah. So I go to my dentist, and I have a great dentist, and I, I've had the same dental hygienist the last couple of years. Her name's Jenny. She's really great. She has kids, different set of values than I do. Not a Christian, but I love talking with her. 
And so we're talking about just our lives, catching up, right? We only see each other every six months, as insurance allows. And she says, hey, you know, we got a new baby on the way. They've already got a three-year-old. They're great. And she's talking about all the other things that have come alongside of that in her life recently. She's uh, pregnant, and, you know, her husband's working, and they're in a good spot. But her mom got sick this last year. And so she had to kind of walk through that season. And I could share about how my family's had to go through that. And we, we were able to kind of share and talk through these different things, talk about our values. This is P.S. all the while, like, like moving stuff around in my mouth, like great time to have a conversation, right? And then she says something. She said, you know, I thought about this with my mom. I thought about this, you know, whenever I had kids. Now I got another kid on the way. I want my kids to be good people. You ever heard someone say that to you? I want my kids to be good people. And I go, man, I agree with you 100%. Can I ask you, what's your source for that? Like, where do you, if you say, I have this definition of a good person, where do you draw that from? Like, what helps you kind of refine your sense of what would be good for your kids to do and not do over time? I'm not trying to trap her. I'm not trying to bait her. I'm sincerely asking her, tell me where this comes from for you. And she said, I'm not really sure. And I said, listen. You know I'm a pastor, you know I'm a Christian. I just want to tell you one of the reasons that I'm a Christian. There's many, but one is that in my parenting, and this is true of any place in life where I experience failure, which is everywhere, I can have a dialogue with a person, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing. And this person is Jesus, because, and I said this to Jenny, I'm like, I believe the resurrection of Jesus is true, and I believe Jesus is actually here, and he's listening, and he's available, and sometimes he talks, and sometimes I just talk, and he listens, and it's not weird, it's not creepy. And because the resurrection is real, Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. And because he's alive, I can have a dialogue with him, I can have a conversation, and I can say to him, hey Jesus, I'm trying to think of how to convey this value to one of my kids, can you help me? And that is so much better than any parenting book. Parenting books are great, but that dialogue, that surrender, that saying, like, I don't know what to do. There's a lot of good options. Jesus, help me pick one that's good in your sight. That person steers me in the right direction. That person helps me be a better husband and father. And I can ask later on, okay, Jesus, I had this dialogue with one of my kids. How'd that go? What, can I, is there something I'm missing? Is there something I can learn here? The point I was trying to make with Jenny, the point I'm trying to make with us today is a dialogue and a conversation, a living relationship with a person is what has changed each of us. And it's what will change our world. And at the end of our conversation, after the fluoride treatment and all that, Jenny said, I've never had someone tell me about faith the way you did. She's not alone. She's not alone. People in our world have never heard about this person. They've heard about values, and they've heard that Christians are against this, and they've heard that and the other. Have they heard about the person? Have they heard about the real encounters each of us has had with him? As we close, I want to show a brief uh, video of a couple who has been a part of Bethany for a long time. And the main, it's a couple, but this main person in the video, Tom, he was this super active guy. He was a skier. He, he would climb mountains. And he had some pretty remarkable stuff happen that changed his life. And I want you to listen for how the person of Jesus has brought this change into his life. Let's watch this video together.
Isaiah 58, 9, then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and he will say, here I am. <laughs> and I'm going to start crying now reading this. <laughs> on January 24th, um, I had passed out. Collapsed in, on the hallway. In the hallway. Floor. And she calls on 911, paramedics show up. So we drove to Silverdale to the ER in, in the hospital there. I got up on a gurney, and that's the last I remembered for 10 days. I woke up in Harborview, and then over the next day or two, the story came out of how I was mostly dead and came back to life. I had gotten sepsis, which is a major life-threatening disease. All your organs shut down, and my fingers and my toes were all black, and I didn't have a clue why I was there or what had happened. From the very beginning, I had nothing I could contribute. I had no skills that I could do anything about this situation. It came on very fast. And so I remember the freedom that came out of that was quite profound because when I am weak, then he can be strong. So I felt very confident that God was right there from day one. And that's a huge gift to just sit with God and, you know, ponder these circumstances happening and not feeling any need or certainly no skill set to deal with them. I was just so grateful you watched uh, every single nurse there doing exactly what Jesus has told all of us to do with their hands, their voice. It was unbelievable to watch. It was a very holy time for me just because I had stopped doing anything else. So it was me and God and Tom. So we could sit and just, you know, be curious together, pray for the people around us, and uh, just be ministered to. I felt so strongly that I finally opened the door that God could say, for heaven's sakes, I've been begging you for years to let me just carry you. And you are so busy walking on your own. And uh, so it was, it was a really joyful, mournful time. And I think what's profound is I'm convinced it's going to be better. I mean, God is not taking us on a walk to get downhill. That there's, it's going to be better than what we had prior to this. I guess it's a miracle that I'm here, and, and this is part of me trying to figure out what are the next steps. And so there's, there's that processing of, okay, God, um, this is sort of my second chapter, Tom 2.0. Um, what does that look like? And what have you learned? What, have you, what are you going to move forward in? you join me in prayer God thanks for this wonderful witness from these two saints we would ask that you would help us see how the scripture kind of carries through their story the story of Marvin the story of Jesus and the Pharisees and how a person really brought about this change And so even now in these moments, would you stir up in us a passion, a desire to name the places of change in our lives, never to brag, but to simply say to our friends and neighbors and to our our broken world, look, there is hope. And there is a person. 
and that all the longings of our hearts are met in him. So each of us in our own way, with our own voices, our own gifts and skills that you've given to us, would you stir up in us a mighty kingdom imagination to bring those stories to life through our words and our actions in the week ahead. Lord, thank you for giving yourself to us, for being Emmanuel, God with us, one of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.